0: Welcome to The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, a podcast production brought to you by Someone New Theatre Company. We hope that you enjoy this episode, part one of The Man with the Twisted Lip. Hi, Sir Whitney brother of the late Elias Whitney, Doctor Divinitatus, principal of the Theological College of St. George's, was much addicted to opium. The habit grew upon him, as I understand, from some foolish freak when he was at college, for, having read De Quincey's description of his dreams and sensations, he had drenched his tobacco with laudanum in an attempt to produce the same effects. He found, as so many more have done, that the practice is easier to attain than to get rid of, and for many years he continued to be a slave to the drug, an object of mingled horror and pity to his friends and relatives. I can see him now, with yellow pasty face, drooping lids and pinpoint pupils, all huddled in a chair, the wreck and ruin of a noble man. One night, it was in June 89, there came a ring to my bell, about the hour when a man gives his first yawn and glances at the clock. I sat up in my chair, and my wife laid her needlework down in her lap and made a little face of disappointment. A patient? You'll have to go out. I groaned, for I was newly come back from a weary day. We heard the door open, a few hurried words, and then quick steps upon the linoleum. Our own door flew open, and a lady, clad in some dark-coloured stuff with a black veil, entered the room. You must excuse my calling so late. She began, and then, suddenly losing her self-control, she ran forward, threw her arms about my wife's neck, and sobbed (laughs) upon her shoulder. I'm in such trouble. I do so want a little help. Why, it's Kate Whitney, said my wife, pulling up her veil. How you startled me, Kate. I had not an idea who you were when you came in. I I didn't know what to do, so I came straight to you. (laughs) That was always the way. Folk who were in grief came to my wife like birds to a lighthouse. It was very sweet of you to come. Now, you must have some wine and water and sit here comfortably and tell us all about it. Or should you rather that I sent James off to bed? Oh, no, no. I want the doctor's advice and help, too. It's about Isa. He has not been home for two
1: days. I am so frightened about him.
0: (laughs) It was not the first time that she had (laughs) spoken to us of her husband's trouble. To me as a doctor, to my wife as an old friend and school companion. We soothed and comforted her by such words as we could find. Did she know where her husband was? Was it possible that we could bring him back to her? It seems that it was. She had the surest information that, of late, he had, when the fit was on him, made use of an opium den in the farthest east of the city. Hitherto his orgies had always been confined to one day, and he had come back, twitching and shattered, in the evening. But now the spell had been upon him eight and forty hours, and he lay there, doubtless among the dregs of the docks, breathing in the poison or sleeping off the effects. There he was to be found, she was sure of it, at the Bar of Gold in Upper Swandham Lane. But what was she to do? How could she, a young and timid woman, make her way into such a place and pluck her husband out from among the ruffians who surrounded him? There was the case, and of course there was but one way out of it. Might I not escort her to this place? And then, as a second thought, why should she come at all? I was Isa Whitney's medical adviser and, as such, I had influence over him. I could manage it better if I were alone. I promised her, on my word, that I would send him home in a cab within two hours if he were indeed at the address which she had given me. And so, in ten minutes, I had left my armchair and cheery sitting room behind me and was speeding eastward in a hansom on a strange errand, as it seemed to me at the time, though the future only could show how strange it was to be. But there was no great difficulty in the first stage of my adventure. Upper Swandham Lane is a vile alley, lurking behind the high wharves which line the north side of the river to the east of London Bridge. Between a slop shop and a gin shop, approached by a steep flight of stairs leading down to a black gap like the mouth of a cave, I found the den of which I was in search. Ordering my cab to wait, I passed down the steps, worn hollow in the centre by the ceaseless tread of drunken feet, and by the light of a flickering oil lamp above the door, I found the latch and made my way into a long, low room, thick and heavy with the brown opium smoke, and terraced with wooden berths, like the forecastle of an emigrant ship. Through the gloom, one could dimly catch a glimpse of bodies lying in strange, fantastic poses, Bowed shoulders, bent knees, heads thrown back and chins pointing upward. With, here and there, a dark, lacklustre eye turned upon the newcomer. Out of the black shadows there glimmered little red circles of light, now bright, now faint, as the burning poison waxed or waned in the bowls of the metal pipes. The most lay silent, but some muttered to themselves, and others talked together in a strange, low, monotonous voice, their conversation coming in gushes and then suddenly tailing off into silence, each mumbling out his own thoughts and paying little heed to the words of his neighbour. At the farther end was a small brazier of burning charcoal, beside which, on a three-legged wooden stool, there sat a tall, thin, old man, with his jaw resting upon his two fists and his elbows upon his knees, staring into the fire. As I entered, a sallow Malay attendant had hurried up with a pipe for me and a supply of the drug, beckoning me to an empty berth. Thank you. I have not come to stay. There is a friend of mine here, Mr. Isa Whitney, and I wish to speak with him. There was a movement and an exclamation (gasps) from my right, and, peering through the gloom, I saw Whitney, pale, haggard and unkempt, staring out at me. My God! It's Watson! He was in a pitiable state of reaction, with every nerve in a Twitter. I say, Watson, what o'clock is it? Nearly eleven. Of what day? Of Friday, June 19th. Good heavens! I thought it was Wednesday. It, it is Wednesday. What do you want to frighten a chap for? He sank his face onto his arms and began to sob in a high treble key. I tell you that it is Friday, man. Your wife has been waiting this two days for you. You should be ashamed of yourself.
1: So I am.
0: What you've got mixed, For I've only been here a few hours. Three pipes, four pipes. Uh, I forget how many, but I'll go home with you. I
1: wouldn't frighten Kate. Poor little Kate. Give me your hand. Have you a cab?
0: Yes, I have one waiting. Then I shall go in it. But I must owe something.
1: Find what I owe, Watson. I'm all off colour. I can do nothing for myself.
0: I walked down the narrow passage between the double row of sleepers, holding my breath to keep out the vile, stupefying fumes of the drug, and looking about for the manager. As I passed the tall man who sat by the brazier, I felt a sudden pluck at my skirt, and a low voice whispered.
1: Walk past me, and then look back at
0: me. The words fell quite distinctly upon my ear. I glanced down. They could only have come from the old man at my side. And yet he sat now as absorbed as ever, very thin, very wrinkled, bent with age, an opium pipe dangling down from between his knees as though it had dropped in sheer lassitude from his fingers. I took two steps forward and looked back. He took all my self-control to prevent me from breaking out into a cry of astonishment. He had turned his back so that none could see him but I. His form had filled out, his wrinkles were gone, the dull eyes had regained their fire, and there, sitting by the fire and grinning at my surprise, was none other than Sherlock Holmes. He made a slight motion to me to approach him, and instantly, as he turned his face half round to the company once more, subsided into a doddering, loose-lipped senility.
1: What on earth are you doing in this den? As low as you can. I have excellent ears. If you would have the great kindness to get rid of that sottish friend of yours, I would be exceedingly glad to have a little talk with you. I have a cab outside. Then pray send him home in it. You may safely trust him, for he appears to be too limp to get into any mischief. I should recommend you also to send a note by the cabman to your wife to say that you are thrown in your lot with me. If you will wait outside, I shall be with you in five minutes.
0: It was difficult to refuse any of Sherlock Holmes's requests, for they were always so exceedingly definite, and put forward with such a quiet air of mastery. I felt, however, that when Whitney was once confined in the cab, my mission was practically accomplished. And for the rest, I could not wish anything better than to be associated with my friend in one of those singular adventures which were the normal condition of his existence. In a few minutes, I had written my note, paid Whitney's bill, led him out to the cab, and seen him driven through the darkness. In a very short time, a decrepit figure had emerged from the opium den, and I was walking down the street with Sherlock Holmes. For two streets, he shuffled along with a bent back and an uncertain foot. Then, glancing quickly round, he straightened himself out and burst into a hearty fit of laughter. <laughs>
1: I suppose, Watson, that you imagine that I have added opium smoking to cocaine injections, and all the other little weaknesses on which you have favoured me with your medical views. Well, I was certainly surprised to find you there. But not more so than I to find
0: you. Oh, uh, I came to find a friend.
1: And I to find an enemy. An enemy? Yes, one of my natural enemies or shall I say my natural prey? Briefly, Watson, I am in the midst of a very remarkable inquiry and I have hoped to find a clue in the incoherent ramblings of these sots as I have done before now. Had I been recognised in that den my life would not have been worth an hour's purchase for I have used it before now for my own purposes and that rascally lascar who runs it has sworn to have vengeance upon me. There is a trapdoor at the back of the building near the corner of Paul's Wharf which could tell some strange tales of waters passed through it upon the moonless nights. What? You do not mean bodies. Aye, bodies Watson. We should be rich men if we had a thousand pound for every poor devil who has been done to death in that den. It is the vilest murder trap on the whole riverside and I fear that Neville St. Clair has entered it never to leave it more but our trap should be here he put his two forefingers between his teeth and whistled
0: shrilly, a signal which was answered by a similar whistle from the distance, followed shortly by the rattle of wheels and the clink of horses' hooves. Now, Watson, said Holmes, as a tall dog cart dashed up through the gloom, throwing out two golden tunnels of yellow light from its side lanterns.
1: You'll come with me, won't you? If I can be of use. Oh, a trusty comrade is always of use, and a chronicler still more so. My room at the Cedars is a double-bedded one. The Cedars? Yes, that is Mr Sinclair's house. I'm staying there while I conduct the inquiry. Where is it then? Nearly in Kent. We have a seven mile drive before us. But I am all in the dark. Of course you are. You'll know all about it presently. Jump up here. All right, John, we shall not need you. Here's half a crown. Look out for me tomorrow about eleven. Give her her head. So long then.
0: He flicked the horse with his whip and we dashed away through the endless succession of sombre and deserted streets which widened gradually until we were flying across a broad balustraded bridge with the murky river flowing sluggishly beneath us. Beyond lay another dull wilderness of bricks and mortar, its silence broken only by the heavy, regular footfall of the policeman, or the songs and shouts of some belated party of revelers. A, a dull rap was drifting drunk, slowly drink, across drink, the sky, drink, and a star drink, or two twinkled drink, dimly I'm here and there drink, through the rifts of the clouds. Drunk, Holmes drove drink, in drink, silence, drink, with drink, his head sunk drink, upon his breast yeah. and the air of a man who is lost in thought, while I sat beside him, curious to learn what this new quest might might. might be, which seemed to tax his powers so sorely, and yet afraid to break in upon the current of his thoughts. We had driven several miles, and were beginning to get to the fringe of the belt of suburban villas, when he shook himself, shrugged his shoulders, and lit up his pipe with the air of a man who has satisfied himself
1: that he is acting for the best. You have a grand gift of silence, Watson. It makes you quite invaluable as a companion. Upon my word, it is a great thing for me to have someone to talk to, for my own thoughts are not over-pleasant. I was wondering what I should say to this dear little woman tonight when she meets me at the door. You forget. Holmes, that I know nothing about it. I shall just have time to tell you the fact of the case before we get to Lee. It seems absurdly simple, and yet somehow I can get nothing to go upon. There's plenty of thread, no doubt, but I can't get the end of it into my hand. Now, I'll state the case clearly and concisely to you, Watson, and maybe you can see a spark where all is dark to me. Proceed, then. Some years ago, to be definite, in May 1884, there came to Lee a gentleman, Neville Sinclair by name, who appeared to have plenty of money. He took a large villa, laid out the grounds very nicely and lived generally in good style. By degrees he made friends in the neighborhood And in 1887, he married the daughter of a local brewer, by whom he now has two children. He had no occupation, but was interested in several companies and went into town as a rule in the morning, returning by the 514 from Cannon Street every night. Mr Sinclair is now 37 years of age, is a man of temperate habits, a good husband, a very affectionate father, and a man who is popular with all who know him. I may add that his whole debts at the present moment, as far as we have been able to ascertain, amount to £88.10, shillings, while he has two hundred and twenty. pounds standing, to his credit, in the capital and county bank. There is no reason, therefore, to think that money troubles have been weighing upon his mind. Last Monday, Mr Neville Sinclair went into town rather earlier than usual, remarking before he started that he had two important commissions to perform, and that he would bring his little boy home a box of bricks. Now, by the merest chance, his wife received a telegram upon the same Monday, very shortly after his departure, to the effect that a small parcel of considerable value, which she had been expecting, was waiting for her at the offices of the Aberdeen Shipping Company. Now, if you are well up in your London, you will know that the office of the company is in Fresno Street, which branches out of Upper Swandam Lane, where you found me tonight. Mrs. Sinclair had her lunch, started for the city, did some shopping, proceeded to the company's office, got her packet, and found herself at exactly four thirty-five walking. through Swandham Lane on her way back to the station. Have you followed me so far? It is very clear. If you remember, Monday was an exceedingly hot day and Mrs Sinclair walked slowly, glancing about in the hope of seeing a cab as she did not like the neighborhood in which she found herself. While she was walking in this way down Swandham Lane, she suddenly heard an ejaculation or cry and was struck cold to see her husband looking down at her and, as it seemed to her, beckoning to her from a second floor window. The window was open, and she distinctly saw his face, which she describes as being terribly agitated. He waved his hands frantically to her, and then vanished from the window so suddenly that it seemed to her that he had been plucked back by some irresistible force from behind. One singular point which struck her quick feminine eye was that although he wore some dark coat, such as he had started to town in, he had on neither collar nor necktie. Convinced that something was amiss with him, she rushed down the steps, for the house was none other than the opium den in which you found me tonight and running through the front room she attempted to ascend the stairs which led to the first floor. At the foot of the stairs however she met this Lascar scoundrel of whom I have spoken who thrust her back and aided by a Dane who acts as assistant there pushed her out into the street. Filled with the most maddening doubts and fears she rushed down the lane and by rare good fortune met in Fresno Street a number of constables with an inspector all on their way to their beat. The inspector and two men accompanied her back and in spite of the continued resistance of the proprietor, they made their way to the room in which Mr Sinclair had last been seen. There was no sign of him there. In fact, in the whole of that floor there was no one to be found save a crippled wretch of hideous aspect who, it seems, made his home there. Both he and the Lascar stoutly swore that no one else had been in the front room during the afternoon. So determined was their denial that the inspector was staggered and he had almost come to believe that Mrs. Sinclair had been deluded when, with a cry, she sprang at a small deal box which lay upon the table and tore the lid from it. Out there fell a cascade of children's bricks. It was the toy which he had promised to bring home. This discovery and the evident confusion which the cripple showed made the inspector realise that the matter was serious. The rooms were carefully examined and the results all pointed to an abominable crime. The front room was plainly furnished as a sitting room and led into a small bedroom which looked out upon the back of one of the walls. Between the wharf and the bedroom window is a narrow strip which is dry at low Tide, but is covered at high tide with at least four and a half feet of water. The bedroom window was a broad one and opened from below. On examination, traces of blood were seen upon the windowsill, and several scattered drops were visible upon the wooden floor of the bedroom. Thrust away behind a curtain in the small front room were all the clothes of Mr. Neville Sinclair, with the exception of his coat, his boots, his socks, his hat, and his watch, all were there. There were no signs of violence upon any of these garments, and there were no other traces of Mr. Neville Sinclair out of the window. Window, he must apparently have gone, for no other exit could be discovered, and the ominous bloodstains upon the sill gave little promise that he could save himself by swimming, for the tide was at its very highest at the moment of the tragedy. And now, as to the villains, who seemed to be immediately implicated in the matter. The Lascar was known to be a man of the vilest antecedents, but, as by Mrs. Sinclair's St. story, he was known to have been at the foot of the stair within a very few seconds of her husband's appearance at the window. He could hardly have been more than an extra accessory to the crime. His defence was one of absolute ignorance, and he protested that he had no knowledge as to the doings of Hugh Boone, his lodger, and that he could not account in any way for the presence of the missing gentleman's clothes. So much for the lascar manager. Now, for the sinister cripple who lives upon the second floor of the opium den, and who was certainly the last human being whose eyes rested upon Neville Sinclair. his name is Hugh Boone, and his hideous face is one which is familiar to every man who goes much to the city. He is a professional beggar, though in order to avoid the police regulations, he pretends a small trade in wax vestas. Some little distance down Threadneedle Street, upon the left-hand side, there is, as you may have remarked, a small angle in the wall. Here it is that this creature takes his daily seat, cross-legged with his tiny stock of matches on his lap, and as he is a piteous spectacle, a small rain of charity descends into the greasy leather cap, which lies upon the pavement beside him. I have watched the fellow more than once before ever I thought of making his professional acquaintance, and I've been surprised at the harvest which he has reaped in a short time. His appearance, you see, is so remarkable that no one can pass him without observing him. A shock of orange hair, a pale face, disfigured by a horrible scar which by its contraction has turned up the outer edge of his upper lip. A bulldog chin and a pair of very penetrating dark eyes which present a singular contrast to the colour of his hair. All mark him out from amid the common crowd of mendicants and so too does his wit for he is ever ready with a reply to any piece of chaff which may be thrown at him by the passers-by. This is the man who we now learn to have been the lodger at the opium den, and to have been the last man to see the gentleman of whom we are in quest. But a cripple? What could he have done single-handed against a man in the prime of life? He is a cripple in the sense that he walks with a limp, but in other respects he appears to be a very powerful and well-nurtured man. Surely your medical experience would tell you, Watson, that weakness in one limb is often compensated for by exceptional strength in the others. Pray, continue your narrative. Mrs. Sinclair had fainted at the sight of the blood upon the window, and she was escorted home in a cab by the police, as her presence could be of no help to them in their investigations. Inspector Barton, who had charge of the case, made a very careful examination of the premises, but without finding anything which threw any light upon the matter. One mistake had been made in not arresting Boone instantly, as he was allowed some few minutes during which he might have communicated with his friend the Lascar, but this fault was soon remedied, and he was seized and searched without anything being found which could incriminate him. There were, it is true, some bloodstains upon his right shirt sleeve, but he pointed to his ring finger, which had been cut near the nail, and explained that the bleeding came from there, adding that he had been to the window not long before, and that the stains which had been observed there came doubtless from the same source. He denied strenuously, having ever seen Mr. Neville Sinclair, and swore that the presence of the clothes in his room was as much a mystery to him as to the police. As to Mrs. Sinclair's assertion that she had actually seen her husband at the window, he declared that she must have been either mad or dreaming. He was removed, loudly protesting to the police station, while the inspector remained upon the premises in the hope that the ebbing tide might afford some fresh clue. And it did, though they hardly found upon the mud bank what they had feared to find. It was Neville Sinclair's coat, and not Neville Sinclair, which lay uncovered as the tide receded. And what do you think they found in the pockets? I cannot imagine. No, I don't think you would guess. Every pocket, stuffed with pennies and halfpennies. 421 pennies and 270 halfpennies. No wonder it had not been swept away by the tide. But a human body is a different matter. There is a fierce eddy between the wharf and the house. It seemed likely enough that the weighted coat had remained when the stripped body had been sucked away into the river. But I understand
0: that all the other clothes were found in the room. Would the body be dressed in a coat alone?
1: No, sir, but the facts might be met speciously enough. Suppose that this man Boone had thrust Neville Sinclair through the window. There is no human eye which could have seen the deed. What would he do then? It would, of course, instantly strike him that he must get rid of the tell-tale garments. He would seize the coat then and be in the act of throwing it out when it would occur to him that it would swim and not sink. He has little time, for he has heard the scuffle downstairs when the wife tried to force her way up, and perhaps he has already heard from his Lascar confederate that the police are hurrying up the street. There is not an instant to be lost he rushes to some secret hoard where he has accumulated the fruits of his beggary and he stuffs all the coins upon which he can lay his hands into the pockets to make sure of the coat sinking he throws it out and would have done the same with the other garments had he not heard the rush of steps below and only just had time to close the window when the police appeared It certainly sounds feasible. Well, we will take it as a working hypothesis for want of a better. Boone, as I have told you, was arrested and taken to the station, but it could not be shown that there had ever before been anything against him. He had for years been known as a professional beggar, but his life appeared to have been a very quiet and innocent one. There the matter stands at present, and the questions, which have to be solved, what Neville Sinclair was doing in the opium den, what happened to him when he was there, where is he now, and what Hugh Boone had to do with his disappearance, are all as far as... Far from a solution as ever. I cannot recall any case within my experience which looked at the first glance so simple and yet which presented such difficulties. While
0: Sherlock Holmes had been detailing this singular series of events, we had been whirling through the outskirts of the great town until the last straggling houses had been left behind. And we rattled along with a country hedge upon either side of us. Just as he finished,
1: however, we drove through two scattered villages where a few lights still glimmered in the windows. We are on the outskirts of Lee. We have touched on three English counties in our short drive, starting in Middlesex, passing over an angle of Surrey and ending in Kent. See that light among the trees? That is the cedars. And beside that lamp sits a woman whose anxious ears have already, I have little doubt, caught the clink of our horses' feet.
0: But why are you not conducting the case from Baker Street?
1: Because... Because there are many inquiries which must be made out here. Mrs Sinclair has most kindly put two rooms at my disposal, and you may rest assured that she will have nothing but a welcome for my friend and colleague. I hate to meet her, Watson, when I have no news of her husband. Here we are. Whoa, there. Whoa. Whoa, Whoa there. Whoa.
0: This episode featured the voices of Stephen Georgiadis as Sherlock Holmes, Shannon Nichols as Dr. John H. Watson, Georgia Perkins as Mary Watson, Ursula Searle as Kate Whitney, and Matthew Bradford as Isa Whitney. Join us for part two of The Man with the Twisted Lip in our
1: next episode.